You are listening to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Podcast from Petaluma, California. Here is this week's Adult Sunday School class. Come on in, grab a seat. We are going to be going through this little booklet, Helps for Worship. And um, we've had these kind of booklets, you know, at at the back table over the years. And um, for a while there, we got so many that we had to decide we can only put so many out at once because it was overwhelming. The whole table is covered with cool booklets. But... um, now, thankfully, good job, Renee. We have a nice little bull, uh, rack back there where we can display them a little bit easier. But we thought, you know, let's not just display them. Let's every so often work through one together. And uh, I thought this would be a good one to start with. So we'll do one, and then we'll do some other stuff for Sunday school, and then we'll probably come and do another one and then take a break. And so, so we'll get a chance to work through some of these booklets over time. But I thought this is a good one to start. And... Um, I am going to have us turn to the preface, page 5. And you'll notice there's the preface, and then there's 33 little chapters. And the chapters are, just like this is a booklet, I think the chapters are chapterlets. Is that a, is that a word? <laughs> uh, so, so they're little tiny little things. And um, I'm going to actually read it, literally read it. And then I'm going to spend some time talking about it. Not, I'm not reading the whole book. I mean, I'm going to read the preface. Then we talk about the preface, and then we read chapter one and talk about chapter one together. And I think that's probably what we'll cover today: is preface and chapter one, because there's there's a lot in here. In fact, the preface I think is the longest thing. Uh, after that, they're all kind of just one page. Uh, so this will be the longest sort of me reading at you. Um, so be a little patient on the first one. Uh, I, I I hesitate on just reading at you, but I think there's a value in reading, and then we'll, we'll have some time to talk about it. So um, the preface. Page 5. The right worship of God is the highest calling given to every man, woman, and child. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Indeed, joyful worship in this life is a blessed foretaste of the worship that God's people will give Him for all eternity. Man's chief end in the new heavens and the new earth is indeed to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Worship is, first of all, theological. It is focused on the true and living God, regulated by His Word. Worship is Christological. It is given, received, and at every point conditioned by Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king. Worship is spiritual. It flows from hearts filled with the Holy Spirit in a setting in which the Holy Spirit is at work using the elements of worship to transform lives. But worship is also pedagogical. Each element of worship teaches something. And all elements of worship are to be used with an understanding of what is being done in worship and why. We are to worship with understanding. The brief expositions of the elements of worship that follow are to help both ministers who lead worship and those who follow them so that all who are gathered together might better worship God with understanding minds and engaged hearts. These were originally produced to be used as bulletin inserts at the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Franklin Square, New York. As a pastor of a congregation with an increasing number of first-generation Christians who had little or no experience with historic reform worship, I sensed the need for our people to have popular explanations of the various elements of an Orthodox Presbyterian worship service. I was also concerned that veterans of reform worship either took these elements for granted 
or did not, in fact, understand what they had come to do as a regular weekly routine. In addition, I wanted to ask questions to challenge people's hearts as they prepared to worship God on the Lord's Day. It is an ever-present danger for all of us to worship with our lips while our hearts are far from God. I would suggest that this material be used at least in three ways. One, to give ministers a tool to help them orally explain the elements of worship as they lead worship services from week to week. If the people in our congregations learn to value the biblical reasons for what is prescribed in our directory for public worship of God, they will be less prone to run after contemporary departures from the rich, richly significant elements of historic Christian worship. Two, to make these expositions available in consecutive weekly bulletins, or consecutive weeks as bulletin inserts, which was the primary purpose for which they were written, so that those attending worship can use them in the quiet before the service to prepare themselves for the worship of God. And three, to send out as weekly email communications for those who follow the blessed practice of preparing for the services of the Sabbath in their homes, especially on Saturday evenings. I am honored that the Committee on Christian Education of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church desires to publish this little volume to help congregations of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and other Christian communities in their worship. May the great King and Head of the Church use it to help, help make us ever more joyful, hearty, and educated worshipers of the true and living God in whom we live and move and have our being. Amen. I think that's an amen because that's a Bible verse there at the end being quoted. Um, so, yeah, that's the longest thing we'll read at any one time, I think, is the preface. Uh, the chapters are a little bit shorter as, as we actually dig into it. But um, starting with that uh, preface, I, I, I think it, it really hits the nail on the head of why this is, this is needed. And in my email that I sent out, you know, when I let everyone you know, know about this series over email, I said, why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do in worship? Reformed worship, really, in, in some folks' uh, experience, can seem strange, maybe even weird. I mean, I've, I've literally had that. I have um, uh, people who come to an OPC church like ours who have come from other Protestant evangelical churches, and they probably came to us because they finally really dug into their Bibles and they started really getting into doctrine. And they probably became Calvinists, and, they, and they, they loved the sovereignty of God and the doctrines of grace, and they're just eating this doctrine up, this sound doctrine. And so they're like, churches teach us, I want to find a church like that. And, and they go and they visit, and then they come, and it's like, whoa, this is a very different worship style than I've ever been used to before. Um, what's going on? And why do they do what they do? And um, uh, to some folks, I think it seems like an awful lot of liturgy. Now, I think you can also think of other folks who might come, who come from, you know, say like a, a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox or maybe even an Anglican or an Episcopalian. You know, they might think we have a very light liturgy. <laughs> so perspective does, does play into this. Um, but I think to someone who comes they may not know why it is that we do what we do. But as the preface said, there can be right here among our regulars, the people who have been here all their life and grew up in the church maybe, who either never have known why it is we do what we do, or have forgotten why it is that we do what we do. Um, I think as a, as a sort of an interesting example, um, most OPC churches tend to 
use a more what we might call more traditional sort of worship style. Um, the traditional maybe is not the best word, but but uh, uh, you know I'm thinking particularly they often sing we often sing hymns, right? And if you ask folks among OPC Church, why is it uh, that we sing hymns? I bet you'll get a lot of different answers. And I don't know if every single answer you get will necessarily be the real philosophy behind why we tend to, to sing hymns. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there are various answers you might get. Just a little side note on that. Um, there are certainly plenty of... of not very good hymns, <laughs> just as there are some really good quote praise songs, right? Uh, so just you know, they're, they're, it's a broader discussion about some detail on that that we'll touch on as we go along. That's just sort of an example. Why is it we do what we do? And even if you've been here for a long time, you might not know why it is uh, that we uh, do what we do. So I'm hoping this is something for everyone. This little series can help us think about worship. So, one of the things that we love to talk about at a OPC church is that first shorter catechism question. Who remembers it? What is man's chief end? That's right. Amen. Amen. I love the acoustics of the building. You actually sounded microphoned to me when you were talking there. So, um, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And, and you notice the preface related that to worship. Of course, it should be true in everything. I've used that question, for example, at our kids' Christian school. And I said the educational process should involve that, right? Looking to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But especially worship. What does that look like to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? Just sort of just throw the question out. What does it look like in worship? to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Just some initial thoughts. Renee. Yeah. It's funny, uh, the first part, I'm going to latch on what you're talking about, about what's the, pr uh, how did you say it again? Uh, you know, what are you going to get? And too often I've heard folks who decide to not stick around at our church say things like, I'm just not getting much out of the service. And well, I'm not saying that, that, that you shouldn't be getting something out of the service. I do think there's a benefit. Uh, and there ought to be, you're growing. And I'm not trying to overly analyze their statement there, but there can be that temptation to be more about what do I get instead of glorifying God, right? And then how that relates into all the things we do, like what songs do we sing? Do these things glorify God or do they glorify man? Do these things glorify God because they talk truthfully about God or do they sort of mar the glory of God because they're not really theologically very sound and therefore sort of obscure the glory of God? So there's a number of ramifications to that. Diego. With understanding. Yeah. Um, I often have had conversations with folks about, um, about uh, Allah, 
the, uh, the, 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 the uh, Muslim so-called God. And every so often, people will say, I think rather uh, simplistically, isn't Allah just the same God of, of, of our Bible? And there's a sense in which they might even claim that, uh, that he was the same God of Abraham, for example. But if you look at how they present God in the Quran, it's not the same God. He doesn't have the same uh, revelation of who he is and what he, what he thinks and what he cares about, right? Like, it's not the same God. And so if we're going to glorify God as God, we need to glorify the true God in truth. Good. What else? What else? Song. Yeah, amen. So, so uh, us good OPC folks, you know, we, we tend to really get around the doctrine side of it. And, and, and so, um, of course, we're going to point out, like, yeah, we need to worship uh, doctrinally right, you know, and, 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 and be sound theologically. But I love, it's got this enjoy God aspect. And uh, I remember one, one uh, time at my old church in Southern California, our pastor sort of lovingly admonished us because because everybody was singing these songs with like a, not a smile on a face kind of thing. <laughs> We're supposed to do this with joy, right? Enjoying God means there should be joy in our worship. And um, I think if there's any area of worship that Reformed congregations probably stereotypically need to work on improving is, is this aspect, uh, that we can be... Um, uh, very much about it being correct, but we also need it to be joyful. Marlon's always good about doing these kinds of things that uh, maybe not joyful, but I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe not. But 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 about like how do these things like sort of challenge us in the Orthodox version of church? He's always good at bringing out that kind of application. So so that's I'm I'm trying to, I'm going to do the Marlon application here and say I think this is an area Orthodox version of church need to work on the joy component because if you think about it, the hallmarks of Reformed Doctrine, sovereignty of God, the doctrines of grace, um, the spirituality of our worship, these things should really excite us, really f bring out the joy aspect, right? We have a God who's in control. Everything out there seems like the world's just, just falling apart, but God's in control. I'm really struggling in my life, but God's in control, right? Um, my, my body is broken. I've got this disease. But God's in control. And I've got a new body coming. Okay. Um, what's that? <laughs> the, in the workshop. That's right. It's, it's, it's somewhere. i got a tracking number, but I think it's like stuck in Ohio somewhere, you know. <laughs> there, there you go. Amen, amen. Uh, okay, so then there's these four affirmations that the preface gives us about worship. You guys saw that there? They're the little things that are italicized. Chris, what's the first one there? <laughs> on, on the preface. We're on the preface right now. Page five. There you go. There you go. Worship is theological. 
So what he specifically is drawing out by that language of, of theological is that it is God-focused, and therefore it is regulated by God. Meaning, he says, this is how I want you to worship me. And so because it's focused on him, and, and he says, this is how I want you to worship me, that's what we try to do. And I've used this analogy many times. If you give someone a gift, but really it's sort of your gift in your mind is all about you. You give them something really you wanted, not what they wanted, right? Then it really wasn't about them, it was about you. But worship is supposed to be about God. So we give God what, what He wants. I always use, again, this sort of analogy. God's like a, you buy from the list, the wish list, not from the, not from the oh, I've got this great idea what He might like. You know, no, stick to the list. Buy from the list. God says what He wants in terms of, in terms of His worship. And um, so, two analogies uh, here to sort of just hit your head around this. T turn in uh, uh, the Bible to Exodus 34, 14. 34, 14. Sarah Viss, why don't you read that for us? So just I'm going to tell you the context here. They come into the promised land. There's all these nations they're going to have to conquer. When they conquer them, they need to destroy all their temples and altars and all those things because those altars and temples and things were to other gods. No, you're to worship the one true God. That's why we don't worship Allah. We don't worship Baal. We don't worship Zeus. We don't worship Krishna or any other so-called deity. We worship the Lord, the one true God. Uh, Turn over then, similar concept, slightly different, over to Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12. I'm going to read a little bit larger section here. I'm going to read 1 through 8. These are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall top down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Now you may have noticed that it starts out sounding very similar to what I told you the context was from the Exodus reading. The Exodus reading is you come into the promised land, Israel. I bring it, and this is under the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, they come into the Promised Land and they're going to uh, conquer and take control of the Promised Land. And they need to destroy all those pagan houses of worship and pagan altars. Why, according to Exodus? Because you're only to worship the Lord God. The same thing is said here, but a different, slightly different reason. 
What was the reason why here? Look at verse verse 4. There you go. That's right. Yeah, this is a very important point. Essentially, remember the first two commandments? The first commandment, don't have any other gods before me. That's the Exodus passage dealing with that. The second commandment is, don't worship God by idols. And, and that might seem strange to think about, but, but one could imagine how someone could worship the one true God through idols. I, I say you could imagine it, because that's what they tried to do with the golden calf. See, the pagans all worshipped in these idols and externals and, and, and their own ways of worshipping God. And he's saying, get rid of all of that because I'm going to tell you my way that I want you to worship me. And he goes on, I'm going to put, put my name in a place under the old covenant. That's what he did, right? It, it became in Jerusalem with the temple. And here's the sacrifices to do every morning and evening and on Yom Kippur and all these different uh, uh, regulations. Under the New Covenant, we've been told some changes to that. And we'll get into some of those in a moment. But we worship God. We call this in Reformed formed worship the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship. RPW. RPW. Regulative principle of worship. It means we worship God not as we see fit. That's what pagans did. They said, let's make a calf and worship God that way. No, we worship him the way he's told us to worship him. RPW, regular principle of worship. Okay, yes? That's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you come here and you have no idea who God is, you're going to basically be an observer, right? And that's part of the ministry of the church is to teach a disciple so that you go from being an observer to a participant. Yeah, absolutely. We want to be participants. What's the second thing? The second thing that is here, worship is? What did I hear? Christological, that's right. So... Give you a, 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 a sort of a passage to hang your hat on. 2 Corinthians 1 20. All the promises of God in Him, in Christ, are yes and in Him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Jesus is a yes and an amen. And, 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 you can think of that in terms of the promises of God. God has promised to redeem a people out of sin, out of damnation, and save us to be His people. So God will be our God, and we will be His people. But He does that in Christ. He promised it in Christ, and Christ came and accomplished it. And now in Christ, we bear His name. Our worship then, like our doctrine, is Christ-centered. is Christological. So, you know, on our website, we say, we preach Christ. It's quoting a Bible verse there, of course, right? Or we say, we do Christ-centered teaching. But again, we do Christ-centered worship. We do Christ-centered, uh, uh, you know, so like, think about an analogy. Dear God, I'm praying to you in Jesus' name, amen. We pray in the name of Jesus. Prayer is an act of worship. We do it in Jesus' name. 
Now, I often point out to people, what does it really mean to pray in Jesus' name? Does it, is it just that I throw on at the very end in Jesus' name? What do you think, Miriam? That's right. Let me give you an, two different example prayers. Prayer number one. I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector and sinner. I'm a righteous person and that you must be pleased with me. In Jesus' name, amen. Or, dear Lord, forgive me. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. Uh, I, I, I'm not worthy uh, for any of your goodness. Amen. Which, well, and maybe I could have put one extra line there. I'm so thankful Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Amen. Which is more Christological between the two? The second one, right? Even though the first one said, in Jesus' name. But a, a Christian prayer is going to bring out Christ, our reliance on Him, our trust in Him, our need for Him. And so that's what we're getting at when we say our worship is Christological. And that means our worship is also soteriological. What's that mean? Soteriological. What's that? No, good guess. Good guess, Emily. Okay, someone else? Soteriological? Uh, Tong knows, doesn't he? Yeah, soteriology is a big fancy word for the study of salvation or the doctrine of salvation. It's, it's about salvation, right? We don't get up on Sunday and only just give you the law and make you feel how miserable you, you failed all week long, right? If we, if we did that, you'd be leaving feeling miserable. Uh, we, we do preach the law, but we also preach the gospel. And especially the gospel, it's, there's an especial soteriological salvation emphasis because there's a Christ emphasis. Renee, you look like you had a comment to share there. You already got the list, right? <laughs> uh, okay. What is the third thing it says worship is here? Spiritual. Now, here's an interesting little, little statement here. Spiritual. In the Old Covenant, yes, worship was spiritual, but think about some of the Old Covenant worship. Was it as spiritual emphasis as we have in the New Covenant? I don't think so. Emily, you're shaking your head. No, tell me something you're thinking there. And it's like, it was more like, you get Okay. Okay. You say, you know, crazy the So it's like, you know, I will give you my my cow, you know, go sacrifice and, you know, I'll go to the Lord, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm going to go do, you know, Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take what you said and, and sort of acknowledge some important things and maybe make a little adjustment to what you said. So, so part of what you described also describes some of the challenges that they had. Romans really brings this out, that some of them thought that it was just about doing all the right things, going through the motions. And that was actually a critique that was true under the Old Testament as well, that, that they could have corrected in the Old Testament even before Christ comes back. Meaning, meaning they weren't supposed to 
have that idea where their heart was far from them. They weren't supposed to just go through the motions, even under the Old Testament. They were supposed to realize the spirituality of their faith. They were supposed to realize every time they did the physical thing, like bring the offering, right, um, that there's something greater going on here. But nonetheless, like you point out, there was an awful lot of very physical things and external things that they were supposed to do in their worship. They had, you know, so over here, right, we got one rather physical thing that we do. Two, if you add baptism, right? Um, under the Old Testament, they had a central place of worship that was really the only temple. It was in Jerusalem, a physical structure. And they had a lot of uh, what we might call smells and bells, a lot of, uh, of uh, incenses and, and, and uh, sacrifices of this and sacrifices of that and, and a whole big um, process full of material, physical things that were facilitating the worship. And these were true worship under the Old Covenant. They were true worship in the covenant, and each of them pointed to spiritual truths. The tabernacle in Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem was patterned off of a heavenly spiritual temple. Moses was shown some sort of heavenly pattern, and he built a physical thing to reflect what he got to see heavenly, spiritually. So these were legitimate things. But it's kind of like when the kids are real little, you get the little board books out, and they're almost 98% picture and like one little word, right? And then when they get older, you give them like, here's war and peace, you know, and it's, there's no pictures, right? And, uh, and they read through it, right? And they learn a lot more, right? And so Old Covenant worship was full of a lot of visible things that pointed to real spiritual realities. And now the sort of church coming into maturity with the coming of Christ he says, John 4, there is coming a time, and now is, that true worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth. And so there's a greater emphasis on the spirituality of the church. In fact, let's turn over there, John 4.24. I just quoted it for you, but it's such an important one to just, I want you to see it uh, before your eyes, and you know where it's at in the Bible, and you can go back and look at the context more. Zoe, would you read that for us? John 4, 24. Good. There's a truth to that under the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's true both covenants. But in the Old Covenant, it was, um, look back on verse uh, 20 of chapter 4. She's, the Samaritan woman's talking about um, uh, with, with Jesus of where to worship. And uh, she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say, Jews, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. See, this is signaling a change. Old Covenant, New Covenant. There's a change that's taking place in the worship. That's why under the Old Covenant there was so much, so much external pomp and circumstance to the worship. And why now under the New Covenant? And we see this in the early days of the church, uh, and, and it's what we try to do here, 
it's much more of a simple service because it's much more of an emphasis on the spirituality of the worship. It's not that you worship here or in Jerusalem or in Mecca or, or any other you know, place. You worship as the temple of God, which is the people of God under the New Covenant, spiritually. Now, now during the Middle Ages, a.k.a. the Dark Ages, you'll notice that Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy made a shift more and more and more and more and more and more back to Old Covenant-style worship. A lot of smells and bells, a lot of pomp and circumstance. But that's not how it was at first. And, and it's not in keeping with this principle that an hour is coming and now is here. There's a change taking place to emphasize the spirit, to emphasize the substance. Okay. Um, fourth one here, worship is pedagogical. That's right. What in the world does pedagogical mean? Teaching. Good job, Diego. Good job. Teaching. That's right. That it teaches something. That it teaches something. This implies we are to understand what it is that we're doing. Right? We're to understand what it is uh, what we're doing. Again, I, I mentioned Roman Catholicism there a moment ago, right? I mean, literally, for a long time there, they kept doing services in Latin when no one, virtually no one in the congregation knew what they were talking about, right? That's not how the Lord would have us to worship. Is it really? <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. Some charismatic churches would benefit from this lesson here too as well. Because they're... Really? That's what some of the Latin liturgy sounds like. Wow. Wow. Man. Man. I, I, God cares for us to actually know what we're doing. Turn over to um, 1 Corinthians 14. I do remember listening. Mm. I grew up that way. I grew up that way. Yeah. It was, it was just somewhat recently in the, in the 1900s, late 1900s, that they made a change. And even then, not every Catholic church adopted it. Yeah, 1960s, thank you. Yeah. So this is a real problem. First uh, Corinthians 14. And this actually is in the context of the Corinthian church in that in that early days of of the new uh, covenant uh, church being established. There's this just great supernatural spiritual gifts being at work, and and the Corinthian church is like the example of of how to use them all wrong in the wrong ways because they got these. Folks who've got these supernatural gifts of tongues, using them in improper ways so that they're getting up there and, and giving essentially mumbo-jumbo, and no one knows what it is that they're talking about. And um, he says, in, certain, in those circumstances, you need to have someone with a gift to, to translate. Otherwise, don't have that guy get up there and just give mumbo-jumbo. So 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 15 gives us uh, the conclusion that he, he offers for us. Um, Marlon, why don't you read 15 and 16 for us? What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. 
I will sing praise to my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? So here basically is the idea that even if there's an exercising of a spiritual gift, if, if you don't actually know what's going on, then you're not really able to be edified from it, let alone others who are hearing it. Worship is to be done in spirit and in mind. So, you know, just as Jesus said, worship in spirit and in truth, we could rightly sort of recognize in spirit, in truth, and in mind. We should actually know what it is that we're doing. And so, um, similarly, turn over to uh, Hebrews 11.6. Tim, would you read Hebrews 11, verse 6 for us? Yeah. And without faith, it is impossible to believe for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those. So this got a lot of worship language built in, drawing near, seeking God. But you can't do that without faith. This goes into Diego's comment earlier about someone who is doesn't know the Lord, right? They can't really participate in worship. They can really just be an observer. But the Lord would have us to know him and to worship him in that knowledge. And so, you know, when it says worship is pedagogical, the point he's trying to make here is that we need to, we need to know and believe what it is that we're doing. And so it's like the concept of an amen, right? Um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about using amens and whatnot as we keep working through here. But, you know, uh, it's especially something we've done in, in worship service, a corporate thing. So, you know, you all say, amen, right? And that's supposed to say, yes, that's right. But if you don't believe that's right, because you don't even know that that's right, that's an element you can't participate in. And the same thing as you're singing a song or as you're hearing the sermon, right? We're trying to grow in our knowledge. And, of course, one of the cool things is, is that worship um, gives us an opportunity as well at the same time to be growing in knowledge. Like when a sermon is being given, right? That's the way that we're actually growing in knowledge. Because, uh, and I'll touch on this next week, but when we think of worship, sometimes you go to evangelical churches and you think, they think worship is like the first 30 minutes of the service, you know, the singing part. And then we get into the sermon part, that's different. But a Reformed perspective is the whole service from, from call to worship to benediction. That's all worship, because worship is drawing near to God. And that involves us praising Him, praying to Him, but also Him speaking to us and blessing us. And so the sermon is part of that encounter with God. As we gather in holy assembly, He's teaching us and training us. He doesn't send us away empty-handed. He sends us with more of His Word and more of His blessing. So that is part of uh, what we do here. Now, um, in the last few minutes, I... I, I was in error, if you noticed. I thought we might get through through chapter 1 as well. But um, the last little bit of the preface talks about some of the uses, practically, of what we're going to be doing with this material. right? And if you notice the three uses, use 1 on page 6 is basically a tool for ministers to help teach about worship. That's what I'm doing in Sunday school. So I'm, I'm doing use number one. Okay? Now, use number two and use number three are about how you guys can make use of this material. 
Use number two suggests you could, if it was sent out like on weekly bulletins or something like that, then you'd be able to use it. Or use number three is that this is material you could do on, say, a Saturday night beforehand to prepare yourself for worship. But you see, as I already mentioned, this is my gift to you, this little booklet. You're going to take this home, and I'm not going to email you out every week, but you've got it. <laughs> and every week you can open it up and, and be working through the material and be, be benefiting from this, from a preparation for worship on Sunday. It goes back to the pedagogical idea. The more you know what we're doing, the more you're able to participate. The more you know why we do what we do, the more you can appreciate uh, what it is that's going on here. And hopefully then, not only in glorifying God, but enjoying Him in this sweet opportunity. So um, we'll carry on next week starting with what is worship. Hopefully this is a good introduction to what we're going to be talking about and sort of a high-level idea of the notion of, of, of what worship is. So, All right. Uh, Renee. Uh, sacrifices on worship right now. Absolutely. And it was to show that that's what that's right. Yeah. And there's a lot we can learn from the Old Covenant worship that points us to what God wants us to know about worship in general. Amen. Well, we're out of time. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace of worship. And we pray, Lord, even as we take a break now and prepare for it, uh, that we would have a sweet, blessed gathering and assembly to draw near to you in faith, to worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, may you indeed be the focus. May it all be done according to how you would have us to do it. Uh, may we lift high the work of Christ and the salvation that we have in his name. Uh, may we indeed do it by the Spirit. And uh, Lord, may we be learning through it all. In Jesus' name, amen.